Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. <laughs> okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is writing related. This is bookish in nature. It is good to be with you. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. As always, my name is Brad Listy. I am your host, and I am here to talk to you. There's a lot going on. I want to start once again by asking you to donate to the Red Cross if you were able. Uh, there's a lot of uh, relief effort happening out on the east coast and they need funds so i think an easy way to help for those of us who are removed from the situation is to donate to the red cross so if you're into that and you want to try to do that just go to redcross.org and uh, throw down a few dollars uh, otherwise there's been some interesting stuff happening here on a creative level uh, personally my book has uh, resurrected itself it seems and just a couple of weeks ago uh, for those of you who listen to the program, this will be familiar. Uh, but just a couple of weeks ago, I was convinced that the whole thing had disintegrated at the 11th hour, that the book might need to be scrapped, uh, buried, burned, that I had messed it up, that I had uh, been misguided all along, and so on and so forth. But I now seem to have salvaged it, and uh, you know, I made some significant cuts. 
I rearranged some stuff in a pretty significant fashion. Um, and I think most critically, I have decided that none of the book is going to take place in Israel. So for those of you who listen to the show regularly, you know, back in September, I flew to Israel for, uh, you know, for a few nights, a quick trip for book research uh, at considerable expense to myself. And I went to Jerusalem, I went to Tel Aviv, thinking that my novel was going to end in Israel, and I had never been to Israel, so I felt like I needed to go to Israel, and so I went there, and I experienced Israel. And then I came back to the United States, and I started working at a furious pace on the novel, heading toward the finish line, only to then realize that it wasn't working which led to a profound uh, freakout, a quiet but profound freakout, uh, which was disheartening, to say the least. And uh, I was, you know, for several uh, days in a complete uh, state of uh, panic, thinking that this was all for naught. But then, uh, just recently over the past few days, I think I've come to realize that the book is indeed there. It is there, and I know how to end it, uh, you know, the, the critical difference being it's not going to end in Israel. It's not going to end in Israel, but all is not lost. And uh, what can I tell you? It's it's a crazy process. This is how it seems to go for me. And, uh, you know, I, who knows if I'm actually right. Everything could fall apart again, you know, for all I know. But for the time being, it appears as though I have a handle on it. And uh, the moral of the story, if there is one, would seem to be that sometimes you have to go to the Holy Land for no real reason in order to resurrect a dead novel. Huh? Does that sound okay? In other news, uh, I, I have another book coming out. It is called Bored, B-O-A-R-D. I co-authored it with Justin Benton. It is a strange experimental work of nonfiction, a work of literary collage, and uh, the entire text is derived from comment boards at The Nervous Breakdown, which is my online culture magazine and literary community, thenervousbreakdown.com. So the book is called Bored. It is a, a strange book, and I'm very excited about it. And it's a strangely emotional book. And I think it speaks well to the way that we all live now, or most of us anyway, as we sit here day after day hunched over our computer screens constructing uh, digital identities. So please be on the lookout for Bored in about a, a week and uh, buy yourself a copy. It'll be available wherever books are sold online in both print and ebook editions. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
So my guest today is Julie Clam. I'm very excited to have Julie on the program. She's the author of multiple books, and she's got a couple of big things happening right now. Uh, her book, Love at First Bark, How Saving a Dog Can Sometimes Help You Save Yourself, has just come out in paperback from Riverhead. And she's also got a brand new book out in hardcover. It is called Friend Keeping, and it too is available from Riverhead. So let's get to it. This right here is my conversation with Julie Clam, the author of Friend Keeping. I'm in my apartment um, in New York City, and I am in the kitchen slash dining room slash living room, um, uh, and I have several dogs around me, but my daughter is not here, so it, it, we shouldn't be right interrupted, um, and I'm looking out the window at Central Park. Oh, wow. Okay. So I was imagining that you were going to be surrounded by dogs. In fact, I was expecting sort of like a chorus of barking dogs or something. Uh, yeah. But... I, I do a radio show with uh, Ann Leary, uh, Dennis Leary's wife, and uh, another writer, Laura Zygmunt. And it's kind of like my trademark thing in the show. We'll be interviewing somebody, and then all of a sudden, there's like a ton of barking, and everybody sort of laughs, but nobody can actually hear. <laughs> but they don't usually do that at night. That's usually more of a 11 a.m. thing. Oh wow. Okay. And so, and like, how many dogs do you have? Three. Uh, three. Mm-hmm. Three. And then, but you're fostering dogs too, or is that not happening? Not right at now? the moment. Um, we, I, I, I kind of had to like rein in my fostering. Um, it was getting a little like, uh, like insane lady with too many dogs. So I am not fostering. I'm doing, I do like my little, my rescue volunteer stuff, but I'm not, I'm not taking any fosters unless one of these, um, these three uh, goes to the, you know, big dog pound in the sky. Right. Well, and then how did you get into all this? Like, are, were you someone who, who started, like, uh, you know, from a very young age, you know, having animals? No, no I had a rescue dog um, th- that I got when I was single, and I just, he, I was just madly in love with him, and he died when I was um, pregnant with my daughter, and I always thought I wanted to do something sort of to, you know, honor him. And, and when I, you know, kind of got settled in, and I think my daughter was like two and a half, I started, um, I decided to join a rescue group and it was just crazy. But, um, but, uh, but it, 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 it worked out, but then, you know, you have, uh, there they go. (laughs) Uh, but then (laughs) I'm on the phone. Do you see this? Um, I, uh, um, then I had to, I had to, I had to stop it for just for, there's, you know, you, 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 there's just so many times you can walk down a street and have some parent teach their kid to count to a high number on your dog. So, um, <laughs> and this, so and, the, and this Boston Terrier that sort of like turned things, uh, or, or like that had such a big impact on you. Is this, is this Otto? Am I remembering yeah, this right? That was the, the, the great Otto. Yes. Okay. And so, and, and cause this is the thing too. I feel like people who have a lot of dogs over a lifetime, um, you know, it's not all dogs are the same relationships mm-hmm. with dogs can be more intimate than others. And, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, you can form an especially, yeah, bond with an animal, and part of it might just be like the the you know synchronicity between your personalities, and part of it might be the time that you're at in your life or whatever. It yeah, might be. I I think I think it's both. I think um, 
the dog that we got after Otto died, um, she is like, you know, her own entity. She's really less interested in people than, you know, finding a comfortable spot. Um, the dogs that I've had after that were like more along the lines of Otto, but no, no dog will ever be like Otto because I had him when I was single and it was such an intense relationship. Um, like how so with you guys were just like hanging out a lot together, just the two of you, (laughs) you're talking to him. It was, it was, Oh my God. Um, he, well, I mean, I, I would like, duck out of work early because he was alone. I didn't want him to be alone so much. Um, I, 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 I totally altered my life for him, you know, down to like order, ordering in from restaurants that did, you know, weren't, the food wasn't too spicy because I didn't want Otto to not have his, you know, his dinner too. Um, I took him to restaurants, um, that we could sit at an outside table and he would sit on a chair, um, I mean, it was it was completely crazy, and there were definitely times in my life where I worried that, you know, my destiny was, you know, sending out the Christmas card with Otto dressed in the uh, Santa hat and me dressed in the antlers. And um, <laughs> well, I was going to ask her, were you were you dressing this dog up? <laughs> um, he was. Uh, I, I I didn't he, I didn't put him in clothes like people sort of put their dogs in clothes like. There's a woman in my neighborhood that dresses her Scotty in a little leather jacket and like a kind of a um, one of those leather uh, village people hats. Um, I didn't do that. He had a winter coat and he had a rain coat, but he didn't really um, like either one of them. So, um, but but they were total just for warmth. It wasn't because I was trying to turn him into my child. <laughs> I was going to say no. I've- <laughs> We we put uh, we were up in Minnesota because my wife is from Minnesota and, and uh, we have a little French bulldog named Walter. And, uh, he was small enough back then. He's since gotten too big to fly. He can't uh, he can't fit in the little bag anymore. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's sort of girthy. But we took him up there in the winter and uh, it was freezing cold. And he was you know we live in Los Angeles, so he's not used to that at all. And so we did have to put him into a sweater strictly for yeah. warmth. Yeah. And and did you walk him in the sweater? Yeah, I did. I did. I mean, I was like, I've always been sort of opposed to the whole like dressing up your dog thing. I think that's sort of normal for a guy. You know, you feel yeah, no. Uh, I know. My, you my, know that's... When it's cold enough, I mean, you know, they need. Some... No, I. I mean, I, I. I did. My my husband used to like sneak out when he would walk Otto. Um, sneak out without putting the coat on, and uh, because he was embarrassed to be seen with a dog with a coat. He's like a big guy, so. But you know, I I'm with you. If they're cold, they should be sweatered. That's right. That's right. So that's the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so I had like I think I had a similar relationship with a dog. Like my first dog, I got when I was 20 years old, like mm-hmm. just completely out of the blue in college. It's like I'll get a dog, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, it was a border collie, which is like an extremely active breed. Right. Uh, Definitely you know, requires a lot, but uh, you know, it was like from 20 to 30 i had this dog and i hiked the appalachian trail with him it was wow. just it was just the two of us and right you can get uh i don't know i i you know i i love my dog now don't get me right. wrong but like there's just certain relationships you have with animals like that was yeah that was a particularly tight bond did he sleep um in your bed 
Uh, so or on your bed? Sometimes. Uh-huh. He wasn't like that kind of dog. You know, he right. wasn't 100. I mean, he would do it, I guess. But he was sort of like, you know, he's sort of like a person. He was really smart. I could speak to mm-hmm. him in complete sentences. Right. And uh, I did. Uh-huh. <laughs> Spoke just, to him. Uh, just English or did he understand other languages? Just, so. uh, just English. But it, was, uh-huh. you know, but it was like, you know. So I, he wasn't, he was smart. He wasn't a genius. He was not. <laughs> <laughs> he's an American dog. He doesn't speak other languages. <laughs> okay. Um, Fair enough. But, no, I could just be like, you know, go into the kitchen and get such and such and then come back. And like, he, you know, just it was weird the way you could, you get into these like, uh, you know, modes of communication with an animal. Right. Right. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I always thought my dogs could, could be smart. They're totally disobedient. So if I said, go do anything, they wouldn't. Um, but they might understand me. Um, but uh, I, um, I, I remember thinking Otto was really, really smart. But I, at one point, sort of wondered if I was, like, assigning him the qualities that I thought he had. I mean, it was sort of a, like, um, you know, I, he feels bad about such and such happening. But, you know, he, his expression hadn't changed. Um, but um, but I, I prefer to think that he was a, a, a deep thinker. Yeah, or like, and sometimes tell me, I feel like Otto might have had, I mean, he seemed just, and this is, again, I'm, I'm totally kind of projecting here, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he seems like a dog with a very high emotional intelligence. He he did have an emotional intelligence. He was, he had a, a wide range of, uh, of, of intelligences. Well, um, and the way that they can, and the way that dogs too, like certain dogs anyway, can intuit the way that you're feeling and that like dogs can be uncanny in that, in that. Yeah. Way, you know? Well, the, you know, I have, I had, a, you know, I have dogs that if I'm upset, they come to me and sort of, you know, try to be comforting. Otto would hide under the bed. Um, he, what he didn't like any sort of um, emotion, like intense emotion. And he was a rescue dog, so I really had no idea what he came from. He also, even if my husband and I were sort of talking about um like somebody saying something in an angry voice like you know so this guy got on the train and was like move over asshole he would then Otto would run out of the room you know and hide even and i was like i don't i was just telling the story i wasn't actually yelling at paul (laughs) so uh so then maybe he wasn't that smart (laughs) but he was he's sensitive he's a sweetheart he was definitely he was he was the the best dog um, and the dogs that I have now are, they're talking, so they don't hear me. They don't hear me saying anything. <laughs> so let me ask you a question like about human beings and particularly human beings who are predisposed to have a uh, strong affection for animals. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cause I, I count myself among them and yes. there's a, this is a quote that I read years ago that I actually included as an epigraph in my first book. Mm-hmm. And it was the quote, and I'm paraphrasing is essentially that people, uh, who have a strong affection for animals are often troubled in their relationships with human beings or something to that effect. You know? Right, right. Where, like, if you find yourself really, like, investing yourself in dogs or investing yourself in cats or whatever, that you're frustrated with humans. Like, like how much of that do you think is true? Uh, I mean, you know, I think that there are animal people that are that are, like, you know, just like there are animal people that are sort of, like, nutty animal people who... You know, there there used to be a woman in my neighborhood who I would see pushing a like baby, an old fashioned baby carriage with a cat in it, um, and she was 
you know, definitely not um, among the regular people. Um, <laughs> but, um, but you know, it, it's like I used to sort of think I could do like a um, – uh, I could give like the character sketch of everybody in Rescue. They're all – you know, a lot of the people smoked, didn't have kids. There was a whole sort of thing. And then like the more I was in it, the more I realized that there were – there were lots of people who didn't smoke and had kids and some were married and some weren't. And, you know, I think, um, I think that, that the two are not mutually exclusive. I think you can, I mean, I, I just wrote a book about human friendships and, um, I am definitely a, a, a dog person. So, so they're, I hope they're not (laughs) mutually exclusive, but, uh, yeah. So, and you have two books coming out in, at roughly the same time, correct? I I have a paper, the paperback of my book that came out last year, Love at First Bark, just came out. Um, that just came out, and then I have a hardcover coming out okay. next week of uh, the human people. So, so you've moved <laughs> you've moved on from dogs to human friendships. Yeah, temporarily, anyway. Yeah. Okay. Well, so let, I want to ask you about friend keeping, and I want to ask you about. Mm-hmm. Um, the age that we live in, you know, mm-hmm. because I feel like, you know, I think I have a lot of friends. Mm-hmm. I feel like I have a lot of friends and I mm-hmm. feel friendly towards a lot of people. Right. Uh, but it's difficult in this age and especially for writers, people who sit in front of computers in isolation all day mm-hmm. uh, or people who work in cubicles or whatever it is. Right. It can be easy to feel detached. And I got to be honest with you, like sometimes I'll sit around thinking to myself, like, do I really have friends? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Do, or how many do I really have? And like, how many right. people, like, I think people wish me well, and I don't think people sit around <laughs> hoping that like something bad happens to me, but like at the same time, if something bad did happen to me, yeah, I, I, I sometimes wonder like how many people would actually be like now, gen- genuinely see, upset about it. <laughs> are you, are you a, are you a, a social networking type of person? Do you tweet and Facebook and stuff? Yes, but awkwardly and with some reluctance. I mean, uh-huh. I, I, I do it and I do it a lot because I have this website and I have this podcast right. and you know, I, right. I have to do it, but like I do it. I, I'm not an, it's not like a, a fish to water type situation. Right. Okay. You know, some mm-hmm. people are like just there. It's like they're, it's like they, what they were born to do, you know? Right. Right. Well, I because because I think that when I'm spending a lot of time um, by myself, and it's never that much time. I mean, I have like you know um, probably uh, four hours in the day that I'm not either picking up my kid at school or at the gym or something, or I'm actually home writing. And um, I do like go on to Twitter or Facebook to sort of connect with people because I feel so disconnected. Um, it, it's and and it, and I you know it's it's like just the amount of um, contact I need and I don't have to like say okay all right now I better get back to work you know you can just sort of duck in and duck out um, but I think um, and I think that in some ways the the whole like social networking thing the internet has made connecting with people and finding people you've lost touch with and and all of that much easier and. Um, being able to keep people sort of apprised of, you know, large groups of people apprised of, like, something that's going on with you. And um, because I, I know the, that a lot of people say it's alienating, but I, you know, I've, once I had um, this um, great aunt that the only way to contact her was, you know, to call her, and it was hard for her, and then her son set her up on email, and it was like, I talked to her every single day and it was, I know it made a big difference in her life. Um, 
so you know so that it's sort of a you know like it can it can be a reason to never leave and think you've been you know con- you know talking to people all day and you've actually not been talking you've been typing at people um, and maybe they're not a- answering you either <clears throat> but um but i you know i i think that that it's sort of to me it's brought people closer to me so you think it's net positive yeah i do I do. I think that, that I do feel that way. And even, you know, I mean, it's, it's, there are certain things like, um, I'm, you know, of, of the advanced age, uh, of where when I first started working, you know, the only way you, you sent a resume in the mail and then you followed up with a phone call, you know, and it was no, you know, it was so much harder. And, and I don't, and I remember, you know, being just thrilled that there is, you know, answer machines so you could screen calls. Um, but so there was, there was like a, I, I definitely don't talk to people as much as I used to. I mean, if I have a question for somebody, I generally like text it or email it. Um, so there is, I, there, there might be some study of like actually, you know, human voices and, and having a conversation is more important than I realize. But um, but I like it. I like it much better this way. Well, I I mean, you can the, like this is the thing because this is where my head starts to like split in two. Is that on the mm-hmm. one hand you don't get yourself like kind of ensnared in these phone conversations that digress right. and wind up eating up all this time that you don't have to spend in the middle of a busy day or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there's something beautiful uh, about these digressions too. Do you know what I'm right. saying? Like you 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 lose some of that human exchange and some of that spontaneity and, you know, you're limited to 140 characters or however long. Oh, I, yeah. I mean, I, I, I definitely, I, I definitely think that, um, you know, a, a conversation doesn't compare to a tweet. Um, but if you're talking about like, um, texting or incident, you know, G chatting or something like that, there's more, I actually think I can type faster. My thoughts come out faster when I'm typing than when I'm speaking. Um, not now, of course. Right now, I'm, I'm at the top of my game, but <laughs> this very moment. <laughs> I was going to say, it's, it's, you're in the zone at this point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about being, I mean, not to sound too corny about it, but like mm-hmm. h- how to be a friend. Like, especially, you know, this day and age, technology, mm-hmm. being busy, trying to manage right. multiple relationships, trying to... Uh, be there for the people that are important in your life. Like, how yeah. do you how do you do that? Because, like, I'm a, like I'm up against it now that I have a family. Especially once you have a kid, mm-hmm. it just becomes mm-hmm. like, I feel like so much harder right. to find time because raising the child takes up so much of your time. Like, how do you do it? Like, what's yeah? I mean, I I you know I think like it, it, you really do. Everybody has to sort of tailor it for themselves. Um, you know, I was um, talking to somebody else today about how there was like a long period of my life where I didn't really make any new friends. Um, probably like from age, I don't know, kindergarten to like, I don't know, outside of like even a few years after college where it was like very few, you know, it was like, you know, the, the few, the school friends were it. And, and then, then there was like a shut off. And then, you know, when I would start to work in jobs, I would meet people in those jobs and be friends with them. And then I'd leave the jobs and I'd keep in touch with them a little bit. And then, you know, they sort of drifted away. Um, and then, you know, I had the like parent friends 
that I have in my kid's school, and I think, would I be friends with this person if my daughter wasn't friends with their kid or whatever? <laughs> right. um, and I try not to answer that. But um, I, I think that, um, you know, there, there's definitely, I have, like, some old friends who are far away, and our, our relationships have suffered because they moved to Colorado or something. You know, when, when they're nearby, it's just easier. Um, and, you know, I have some friends that are, like, great at long-distance relationships. They moved away, so they, they kind of took it upon themselves to, to maintain that. Um, in, in, like, the regular life, I think it should feel natural. Like, if you think, oh, God, I haven't talked to somebody and I owe them a phone call, you know, it's not the same as, like, God, I would love to see so-and-so and, you know, I, you know, I have, you know, my, my best friend that I, we, we have the hardest time. Um, we both have kids, but I had my kid like six years before hers. So there was like, we just had the, the worst sort of timing with going through the same thing at the same time. Um, so she had like the craziness with the baby time by when I had much more free time, she was like, you know, free when I had all the craziness, but, and we do like have to force ourselves to, to, to sort of like keep dates on the books and because it's so easy to sort of let it all slip away. But it always makes me incredibly happy when I see her. And then we leave and say, not so long between this time and next time. Oh, right, right. Well, that's the thing. When you say like slip away like that, I, I, you know, obviously with your best, your best friends, you're not going to let that happen. But when you mm-hmm. talk about... You know, people in your life who have been important or old work friends who you used to see every day and who you mm-hmm. had such, you know, you had lunch with every day for like three years of your life right. and you were really close with and then suddenly you change jobs or you leave or something, you know, something happens in your life and then, or, or that person moves or, you know, something happens mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden it's like, I haven't talked to that person in two years. Right. Like, Boy, is that depressing to think about. Right. I know, I know. I remember leaving, I think it was when I, when I, I when I was in, um, college I was an intern on at David Letterman and and he and I were you know close when I was there and when the day I was leaving he said are you going to come back and visit and I said I don't know if I want to be that person who comes back to visit and doesn't really belong and everybody sort of says hi and they were kind of like yeah I got to get back to work you know like I didn't really want to have that experience and he was like yeah no I I understand that but um but it just sort of, um, you know, it, you know, you do, it does sort of like, there are relationships that are sort of like for a time in your life, in a place in your life, and that's all they, they are, I think. And it's, it's like, you know, I, I mean, I had that, you know, a friend that I was really close to with, um, who lived a block away. She had a kid, my kid's age. We, we saw each other every single day, talked all the time. And she moved like, an hour away. It's not like she moved to, you know, Europe. Um, and you know, it's, if, if I see her once a year, it's a lot. It just, it's, yeah, I think when you, what you said before was it, it's like when you are in a, you know, busy, active life with you and it's exhausting to do all the things you have to do. And then, you know, you want only want to maintain the friendships that you really get something out of. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and, I guess uh, when it comes to like 
picking and prioritizing, you know, like, yeah, yeah. You, do, you do have to make decisions, you know, and like, you can't do it all. And I don't think, right. that, I don't think that I ever really sit around making like conscious decisions. Like, like that one's going to, I'm going to let that one whip yeah. on the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> You've been cut, you know, but it just, it right. just sort of happens naturally. And like, you know, I have this kind of, I think I have kind of an idealist bent, like not only when it comes to these, you know, this particular subject matter, but just in mm-hmm. general in life, like mm-hmm. I can find myself, um, just so brokenhearted about all of it. Like I, like even with exes and like everyone mm-hmm. I've ever known who have been, I've been close to, whether it's a friend or it's someone I was romantic with when my yeah. teenage years, like mm-hmm. why can't we, we should all be in better touch. And then I, right. I, I think about also like the way that our um, society is structured now, not to get too like, uh, you know, crazy about it. But like when you think about how people like families are, are so spread out, you know, geographically, yeah, definitely. My, my family's all over the map. And then like mm-hmm. friendships, like people move all mm-hmm. over the country and move yeah. all over the world. It's like what I long for, I think, and I'm probably idealizing this more than I should, but it, it sounds so great to me to live in some like really nice small town with like all mm-hmm. my friends in one town, <laughs> you know? right. sort of like it, sort or, of like it was in college. I guess, so. Yeah, no, or, or even like, you know, I mean, my dad, grew up in an apartment in Harlem, but he had like their, all the relatives lived in the neighborhood and, um, and stayed at their house and, you know, his grandparents babysat because they were right nearby. You know, there, there, there's a lot that I think has been lost in everybody wanting to sort of move to the, another place and be in another town and not be stifled by things but I you know I mean um, I, I mean it is sort of sad because I think like any anything where you like have to say goodbye to something you know or it, or you realize you have said goodbye to something is sad in any in any part of your life and you know especially when you look back to things in your youth it's like you know there, everything looks so you know everything is is you know in those beautiful you know young Pepsi commercial colors um, when you think back on it, um, but it's actually, you know, I mean, it's just nice when you're young and you don't have any responsibilities. Yeah, those were the days. I mean, college especially, just because you're all, you know, you're in that sort of college campus environment and it's all sort of contained and Mm -hmm. you you have like no choice but to have all these friends and you're all... I don't know. That's the way I remember it anyway. No, but, I, yeah, yeah. But it wasn't it's like... At, and that's what it should be. Yeah, but, it, but at the same time, too, I'm probably like, you know, you, you see the past through rose-colored glasses, just as you were saying. Yeah. Like, it wasn't yeah, like it was sure. all perfect. What did Paul Simon say? Everything looks best in black and white. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit more about you. I want to know about your, your bio. Like, where are you from? Like, let's start at the beginning. Um, okay, I grew up in... Uh, well, uh, yeah, I grew up in, um, like an hour north of the city and I always, I lived in a, in the country in like a huge house with a lot of land and a lot of animals. And, you know, my dad worked in the city, but they were like very, uh, you know, gardening type of people. And, uh, we had horses and chickens and blah, blah, blah. And, um, it was like a gentleman's farm kind of thing. Yeah. kind. Of, yeah, I guess so. I mean, we had a pool and a tennis court, you know, it was, it wasn't like, um, wasn't, wasn't as rustic as all that, but, um, but I always wanted to be in New York city. I always loved, um, Manhattan. And that was like my, from like when I was five, I just sort of planned to somehow get here. Um, so I, <clears throat> I, 
I'm going to skip over the years until I went to college because they were extremely boring. Um, and I went to NYU film school and it was like I was in this, you know, like incredible dynamic place where, you know, everybody there, everybody in my class was like the child of, you know, Coppola and Scorsese. And, you know, it was, you know, I was the only person who didn't like have... Like who? Like who? Like, honestly, who was, who was in the I'm, class? I'm, I'm, I'm Martin Scorsese's daughter, uh, Francis Ford Coppola's son. Oh, for real? Um, yeah, real. <laughs> um, uh, there were uh, the producers of the Rocky movies. Their two sons were in there. For some reason, Bianca Jagger was in one of my classes. She was taking film classes, but it was really like it was an intensely, um, uh, you know, um, where you thought, why did why are they even bothering? Um, and then the people that weren't um, famous um, in my class were Adam Sandler, who went to be on to be famous, and then all the people who work in his movies. So I had this really exceptional. Um, and, and, and you were talking about campus. It was like, I lived in an apartment and it wasn't campusy at all, but, but it was a really, you know, really fun time. It was also a time where everything was possible. And, um, I, you know, I found real life after that to be extremely shocking, um, because it's much harder to make things happen than you think it's going to be. Yeah. Well, what did really? you want to do when you went to film school? Were you going to be a director? No, I never wanted to be a director. I never, I always wanted to be a writer, but I thought I was going to write movies. I, I think I started there doing cinema studies, studying movies. I thought that would be, that would be a fun way to spend. I actually looked through courses to see which ones didn't have a math requirement. And um, <laughs> that was pretty much how I got on my path. Um, so I, I, yeah, so I did that. So I, I didn't want to be a director. I wanted to be a screenwriter and I did write a bunch of screenplays and then just, you know, that's a harsh reality. Um, uh, like the whole Hollywood world, I, I, I got, you know, so close so many times to things that didn't actually happen. And then I said, I, I just want to write books because you decide to write a book, you, you know, sell the book, then somebody publishes a book, and it exists. It's like you decide to write a movie, a million people talk about how much they want to do it and do things with it, and then, you know, it gets optioned, or and then the option goes away, and then, you know, somebody else says it, and the, that, that whole process I found just, you know, awful, well, and I don't, yeah. I was just going to say, I've had this conversation with friends before, like writer friends, and uh, or just in general, and it's about the movie making process because I, I studied film as an undergraduate too, and mm-hmm. um, and then have been through like the rounds, taking meetings and doing all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you just look at any film, you know, especially when you compare it to the solitary and sort of singular nature of writing books, um, mm-hmm. and you think about how collaborative film is and how many different people seem to have their hand in the cookie jar and how many people it takes to actually make a movie. Like it's amazing right. to me that any good movies get made. You know, yeah. Like it seems like yeah. a miracle to me that like, yeah. like, you know, it's, it's one thing to just get a script through the process and get a movie into production, but then to actually right. make the movie well, seems like astonishing to me. You know, I know, I know it's, um, it's like when I was first, um, 
planning to have a baby and I started to figure to like see things about how that what things have to happen for you to get pregnant and I was like it's a miracle that there's any people born like really like a lot of things have to go right um and obviously lots of people um get through that process um <laughs> more than the more than people get through the making a movie process but um correct. i i just um i am too impatient for that um the movie thing i feel like the movie business is like an ex boyfriend of mine who you know broke my heart and and uh, you know um, I sort of I feel like, like that too, except it's a girlfriend or something. Like, <laughs> I, you know what I, you know what I compare right. it to? I compare it to this like merry-go-round, mm-hmm. and like there's all these people who are on the merry-go-round, and then there's right. all these people who are not on the merry-go-round. Right, right. And it's, right. it seems like if you're on the merry-go-round, the money's great. Everyone's yeah. going to Pilates, and everyone's <laughs> driving like a, a Mercedes SUV, yeah. and it's like, oh wow. And then you ask people how to get on the merry-go-round, and they're just like, I don't know, you know? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. It, it has. It's it's all the all the the catch twenty two stuff I know and and you know when you're here like I will you know every so often like my agent's assistant will forward me an email from some producer that I know of who's like interested in something of mine and I just you know there would have been a time a long time ago where I'd been like you know that night I'd be you know standing in front of the mirror accepting my Academy Award um, <laughs> and it just um, I don't even follow up on them anymore because I don't, I know where that's going. I, I, I know, I just know. Um, it's like the boy and, who cried wolf, you know? You can't. Yeah. And it's, it's like, I mean, you, you know, if you've like worked in that business that there's like the majority of people, their jobs are just to have meetings and talk to people. So they love to talk to you because that gives them, um, you know, something to put on their planner that day. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm so much happier in publishing. Yeah. It's, it's, much, it's, it's much more of a gentleman's business. I mean, I, yeah, it's like, it, well, it just, it's just, you know, I mean, it's like, it just isn't, I get, it's just not as hard to put a book out as it is to put a movie out. You much fewer people involved. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So let's talk. I want to talk. Uh, like I want to get at least a little gossip from film school, since you were there with so many different yeah. names. Like, what, did you mm-hmm. know? Did you know Adam Sandler at film school? Yeah, you, yeah. You guys, I did. Out? I mean, he wasn't. He was. It was. He was actually like starting to do stand up, and he used to go. Um, I think he opened for the Bill Cosby Show, which filmed in Brooklyn. Um, he like did like you know stand up before that, and then a couple of times he got on the Bill Cosby Show or. Cosby, I guess it was, um, and everybody, so everybody sort of knew him because he was doing that, but, you know, that seems like as far as it was going to go. Um, yeah, I was going to say, did you didn't have a sense when you met him in college, like, this guy's going somewhere? No. You know how he seems in his movies, like, the character he always plays? Yeah. I mean, if you met that character in real life, you wouldn't be like, that's savvy genius is going to be, you know, the king of Hollywood. Right, right. You know, he's sort of, you just, I mean, it's, it's definitely, he's, he's very obviously really great at what he does. And, um, uh, but it, you know, I, I have a, a knack for never picking who's going to be, um, well, okay, okay. Somebody you wish you knew. Okay, so this feels this feels like it's a you know of a piece with what we were just talking about with regard to like yeah. how to like infiltrate Hollywood and how to actually like ascend into that mm-hmm. uh, you know the merry-go-round world or whatever. Right. 
And so right. uh, I have, an, I have a, a parallel anecdote, and it's not first person, so I can't – I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's true because the person who told it to me, I, I trust. But, like, yeah. they right. said they were at a restaurant, and Adam Sandler was there, and he was having dinner at the table, like, right next to them with mm-hmm. some sort of, like, business partnery agency type person. Mm-hmm. And they said that, like, they could not believe – like, he was talking, like, hardcore business, and he mm-hmm. was, like, unbelievably aggressive and – um you know, I don't know, just like they were just like, whoa, it was right. like totally at odds with that movie persona. And there was also like a real shrewdness and a right. hard edge, you know, right. Well, there, there must be, I mean, you think about like what it takes to be successful. It's like you couldn't be um, like a bumbling, you know, kindergartner trapped in the body of a, whatever he is, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> a physicist. Um, but, um, and, and I mean, you know, so, so that sort of makes sense to me, and it's it's kind of a relief to me. I mean, it's like you don't want people like accidentally being, you know, really successful. I <laughs> <laughs> you do not want that happening. No, but I'm sure it does happen sometimes, or at least like there are people who are just like really kind of raw talents, and then they have people around them that sort of like figure yeah. out how to commodify that or whatever. But yeah, and then they then they become Lindsay Lohan and, <laughs> right. and it all goes to hell. So what about, uh, what about Letterman? How did you get, uh, you, you interned at the letter at the late yeah. show? Yeah. Was you know, it late it, night? It wasn't the late, yeah, it was late night. It was a, it was like a mom and pop shop at that point. It was like a, it was on like a part of a floor on Rockefeller center. Um, and, uh, you know, the, it was like a, it was like a, any like sort of smallish office with you know you know like thirty people or forty people work there. Um, you you know you walk down the hall. Dave's office had a bathroom in it, but other than that, it wasn't so um, incredible. And it was like to, I think it was to me the golden time of of late night. That was those were the years that Chris Elliott was on the show, and um, you know it it was it was that that first um, group of writers that were all, you know, Harvard Lampoon guys. And um, I got the internship. I mean, it was, it was like I applied for it. You know, they had me come in. I interviewed and they said, would you mind doing blah, blah? And I said, no. And they were like, okay. And there were like, five interns for the entire staff. I think now there's like five interns for Dave <laughs> and he has like his offices behind like this glass wall that you have to like have your like eye print to go through. And, you know, it's, it's totally different now. I mean, the people I've talked to now say nobody who works there sees him or anything in those days, like everybody just wandered into his office and started throwing the football. Um, so I'm glad I was there then. And it was like a nice you know, it was it was a, a really nice experience. I think it kind of spoiled me for a lot of things um, beyond that. I never had a uh, a boss like that again. Um, you mean Dave? Like, yeah, like, yeah. What, what was he like? Like, because I've heard. I mean, I, I have heard that he's ex- an extremely charismatic guy. I mean, obviously he's mm-hmm. charismatic. He's a star. But I mean, like when you're yeah. around, when you're around him in person, did you feel? Yeah, that, I or? mean, um, this was um, you know, 1986. He was so I don't know if he's that I haven't I haven't seen him in that many years, but he was extremely funny and very generous, very, very generous and um I mean and you know, like a 
a very decent person and somebody who you could like sit down and talk to. And when I, I went there and then I had another semester of school and then I came back after I graduated to talk to him about jobs, like jobs, not there, but I needed to find a job. And he was like making calls to people, you know, to help me find a job, which was more than I could say for a lot of other people that I worked for. Um, and he'd be like, who, who, who can I call? Who? And I'd be, and I, and I was like, at that point I wanted to work for a director and I was like, well, do you know Ron Howard? And he was like, well, you know, he's, he's been on the show, but I, I don't think I'd be able to, I don't think I could call him. You know, it was just so sort of strange thing. Um, the, then the stranger thing was I, I ended up working for a, a talent agent. And when I left that job, I interviewed to be Barbara Streisand's assistant. Oh, wow. And, uh, and that was, that was, that was like, that okay. interview was like okay okay let's get into yeah. this this, is, this sounds right. great okay so yeah. you leave letterman so, you leave letterman's internship and then is the next thing you do you become you work at a I talent work, agency yeah i was an assistant at a talent agent i you know i it was it was like a nightmare job of like where you know people used to blow smoke in your face and throw scripts at your head and things like that <laughs> in yeah. the good old days yes. um and they didn't and there was no computers this is what i always telling my kid we had to type things, and if you made a mistake, you had to pull the paper out and type it again because my boss that I worked for didn't, like, wait out on things. So um, they, I, I love to wow the kids with how things were in our day. Before they had a remote control, you had to walk up and change the channel on the TV. Um, so, so after that job, I went to interview with Barbara Streisand, and... First, it was, you know, there's like four interviews with other people before you actually get to interview with her. You know, all you have to go through all the people. And where, and where then, are you? You're in Manhattan somewhere? Yeah, just in these production offices. And then the interview with her is at her apartment. Um, but it's like you take the elevator up and get off and it's her apartment, you know, in one of those like gigantic Central Park West apartments. You know, we were in like the... Um, like it, it, it must have been like a million rooms, but we were in like the we were on the business side of her apartment with the in the sort of office outer office area, and she came in and sat down, and there were like there was like an assistant with her and her producer, but she was doing all the talking, and her son was in NYU with me too. So the first thing she asked me is, "Do you know Jason Gould?" And um, and did you? I was, I would, I, I, you know, I knew of him. I mean, there was like 10,000 kids in my class. I didn't, we, I, we weren't buddies. Um, you know, he was, uh, um, a gay guy, nice, whatever, not, didn't, we didn't, we didn't really run in the same, uh, circle. Um, and he, uh, um, so I didn't know him that well. And I think that, and then she started, oh yeah. And, and Jesse Dillon, Bob Dillon's son was also in our class. Um, See, I told you, right? It's a pretty impressive uh, list of of, uh, of of legacies, right? God, yeah. Um, uh, so um, she's like, so did you know Jesse Dillon? I was like, yeah, yeah. I, no, I did know him. But there was already, I was like, like, does she think I'm a fraud because I wasn't friends with her son? <laughs> and then the whole thing was so surreal. I mean, I hadn't didn't have a lot of job interviewing experience, but then you're sort of sitting there with like, it's like you're sitting there with Elvis Presley, you know, some, you're just thinking like every, you know, she's like this icon and she's being herself. And, and then she said to me, um, so you work for David Letterman 
um, he's cute. Is he single? And I said, um, uh, yeah, he, he is. And she, and she said, oh, I think I'm going to call him for, uh, you know, for your reference. And I was like, okay. And then, <laughs> and then like two days later, Dave called me and he was like, why is Barbara Streisand calling me about you? And I was like, this is probably the, the most exciting my life will ever be. And you know, it's ne- never, ever reached that since then. But they, they did have a conversation on the phone about me at some point. I didn't get the job. So I guess Dave wasn't, um, wasn't uh, yeah, or, or I, I, I think it had much more to do with her than it did with me. He wasn't a, a big fan. Um, but anyway, that, that was like the exciting, uh, the ex- exciting, that was just, that was enough. Having the job interview was enough. You didn't actually need to work for her. And I did hear that working for her was rather difficult, which isn't a surprise. Yeah, I was going to say, like, so did you get a warm feeling from her or is she sort of chilly? Um, a little, a little chilly. Like one of the things she said to me was, do you know how to... Are you? Do you know how to make video? You know videos, and I mean, when this was back again in the dark ages, it was like a big giant video recorder. But I did take it in college, and I said, "Yeah." Um, And she said, "Because sometimes, like, I'll say, there's some. I saw some dishes down on um, on uh, you know on Canal Street, and I want you to go videotape them." And I remember thinking, like. Why do you need a videotape of dishes? Like, why wouldn't a photograph be sufficient? You need a video because the dishes, you want to see how they, the light change. I mean, it was like, <laughs> but I just thought, I, I, I am not up for this. I'm going to, this is going to, and maybe she sensed that she was, just, it was going to be too much for me. I was just too scared of, of the potential of the mistake in the videotaping of the Well, and the dishes. thing, no, but the thing too is that like, I, this is my, I have a problem with this. Like, uh, anytime I've ever interviewed for a job or for mm-hmm. something that I didn't really want, yeah, I'm unable to fake it, which I think is an right. essential part of getting the job and just like gutting it out. Like people can just read it. I think when they can, like they, they can. There's something about maybe your energy. She's like this. She's not going to want to videotape dishes. Like you need no, I think in. I think I just was like. I mean, the thing is, it, this was one of I was interviewing to be one of her like three personal assistants, so it wasn't like. I, I'm sh- I was sure that I wasn't going to have, like, a great amount of responsibility. I'm sure that the important things, the important dish videotaping was gonna, would, would go to the, you know, first assistant. Right. But I somehow felt like I, I just wasn't going to be able to manage. She, she, you know, she's very well known as being a perfectionist. And I'm very well known as being a mistakenist. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> it just was, and I was like, I just... I just, it just was too daunting. And I remember when I left, I thought, I don't want to get this job, but I don't want to not get this job. And the universe um, answered my prayer, and I just never heard from anybody, and I didn't call them. And so I, you know, maybe I did get the job, and I just never showed up. That's what you can choose to um, believe. Yeah, yeah, whatever I want, right? <laughs> right. So um, just one last thing about uh, Letterman is, yeah. has he, have you ever been on his show? Yeah, I was on a, a lot when I was. Um, when I was working on there, we would be in little sketches and things like that. Um, yeah, so but like, uh, I haven't been on. I, uh, no, I haven't been on as a as a writer. I and, haven't and been on since then. Do you keep in touch with him, or like, would you? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, if you ran into him, would it be like, oh, hey, you know, from back in the day, or is it? You sort of um, lost, is this a friend that you have lost I've, touch you know, with? I, I, he's a, he's a, he's a friend I've lost touch with. I, you know, the head writer of the show at that time, and one of the other writers of the show at that time, and one of my the interns. 
um, from then are have all remained very close friends of mine. You know, I was never going to be um, going out to dinner with Dave. It was, it was, you know, I was like 22 and he was probably 42. And um, it's hard for me to believe now that I actually thought that was old. But, um, but um, you know, I, I, you know, we've like, I've thought about like, oh, I could probably send him a book and see if I, but I never, I never, I never want to like feel embarrassed about, you know, calling in like an old thing of favor like that, you know, like what if he got it and was like, who, you know, I mean, by now he's had 8 million interns and, you know, other people who worked there remembered me, but I, I, I doubt he would. And, and then, you know, I would just be sad. Yeah, right. You don't want, and plus, yeah, it's just, it's just weird to start to try to trade favors or, you know, I, I told Oh yeah. Just, I mean, it was, as it was like for, you know, my job as an intern there was to, to do the tickets for the show. And it was like for like 20 years after that, people would still be asking me for tickets to Letterman. And I'm like, I, <laughs> I, 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 I can't help you. I can, I, you know, I can get you a ticket to their, I could, I could get you a movie ticket maybe. Right. Um, okay, so let's trace this a little bit more. You get you you don't get the Barbara Streisand inter, uh, you know internship or job mm-hmm. or whatever assistantship, right? So then, what happened next? Then I decided I was destined to be a failure in my life, and um, I got I t- took a part time job in my dad's company in Midtown. What does he? Do? What um, did your dad do? He was a um, financial planner, and I worked in the life insurance department in the um in the in the sad old people death claim division um <laughs> the, so per, people the perfect would call job me the perfect job yeah, for a was, film major you know it, it was it was it, and i always like oh, this would be a great script you know like the death claim person who gets the, the and then you know decide and you know you're always imagining everything as a script and um but um i did I started to do, I had a teacher at NYU who was an editor at Vanity Fair and he gave me like tiny little assignments, like a hundred word things to write for Vanity Fair. And then I sort of like, based on that, um, you know, told somebody at at, um, Rolling Stone that I wrote for Vanity Fair. And then I started writing for Rolling Stone and and like, it was sort of like this thing where you sort of just, uh, you know, would say to people, you do this. And then they were like, oh, you're, you're you do that. So then, and then you get bigger and bigger things. And then finally you have enough clips to actually get that. So, so I did all of that, um, magazine writing. And then somebody I worked for somewhere recommended me, Oh, it was actually the head writer of Letterman recommended me to a new show at VH1, which was called pop-up video. Um, and I did a test script for them and got hired and um, I worked there for a year, and then I, the producer of the show and I got married, um, and I was one of the few people to sleep my way out of a job, <laughs> but, um, but I did that, and then I, you know, pretty much, like, I, I worked on, like, some kind of, a bunch of, like, really short-lived, crummy VH1 shows, and then... Um, started to write longer essays and then I wrote my first book and then second book and third book, fourth book. And then a few years later died. 
So let's talk about the trans. Let's try to like maybe like zoom in on the transition into writing books. Mm-hmm. And did you? I mean, uh, what was the? I mean, obviously everything that we've discussed so far was part of your learning curve. But when mm-hmm. you actually sit down to write something long form, you know, there's only one way to learn it. Really, you have to sit down and do it. You have to read right. books. Obviously, like how much? Um, how many false starts did you make? How much rejection did you have to suffer? Did how did you um, cope with all that? Well, the the first book I decided. The first book I wanted to write was the was a memoir, and it was, you know, about basically my experience of kind of growing up and being totally unprepared for life, which I was, and then having to sort of like find my way and and become a grown up. And um, I my I had um, I was I had an agent. We, I had met her at a party, and we hit off, and she she happened to be, like, a gigantic super agent, and I told her I had this idea for a book, and she said, you know, write, a couple, write up a proposal for it, and then she um, sent it out, and, you know, everybody was rejecting it. But she, she was sort of sending it out to, like, because she was so big, she was sending it out to, like, the, like, head of, like, the, the editor-in-chief of, you know, Bantam Publishing. Like, she was she was sending it to, like, people that were probably too big for it because she was used to having, like, she had her list with all these big bestsellers. And, and we're know. talking, this is Esther Newberg, is that right? Esther Newberg, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And then um, uh, I think I had gotten, like, eight rejections and I said to her let's just forget this see that's my um, that's my fighting spirit <laughs> say, let's and just roll like, over yeah let, let's forget it and she goes oh please and um, and I it was like I was in a doctor's office and I was reading a New York magazine and the article was about like um, that the hot new editors and one of the editors was um jeff klosky uh, who discovered sarah vowell david sedaris dave eggers you know he was like this you know and i thought and i like went home and googled him i think they had google at that point and um he was now the publisher of riverhead books and riverhead you know publishes great books they juno diaz and you know all of these like it's a it's a it's a really great um, publisher and I said to Esther, "Is there anybody at Riverhead?" And she said, "There's this. There is a young woman there who I was thinking about sending this to." And I thought, and I said, "Well, that might be, you know, that might be a good thing." And then that was the person who bought my book, and That's I'm now Megan you know, Lynch. That was Megan Lynch, and I'm now um, writing my fifth book with Megan. And um, uh, not, you know. I mean, she, uh, she's an amazing editor, and we're very different um, kinds of people, but it was sort of like the most fortuitous meeting, you know, put to, you know, matchmaking of my life, um, I think. Why? What is it? What is it? I mean, if you guys are both so different, like how are you different, and then how, okay, how, do, the, how she, do the differences add up to something great in terms of the collaboration? All right. She, okay. She's like, like um, was like a like girl genius like she she got her first editing job when she was like in her 20s working for Nan Graham um she went to Brown she went to an all-girls Catholic school and she was the valedictorian I went to like a progressive 
public school and I'm Jewish and I graduated in the bottom 10% of my high school class, <laughs> um, which is, I think something to, you know, something to be proud of. Um, it was like, I, we were, we were as opposite of, as people could be, but for some reason it worked together. She, she's, you know, very, very smart and funny and, you know, early on when I was sort of still like trying to figure out what to do, she had a very, um, just, it was like she was spoke the language that I needed to hear to get to the thing that I was supposed to do. It was like, she just was really good at directing me and, um, explaining things. And we, I always get what she says, like in one word and it works out. Um, and it's, it's, it's like a funny thing like that. Um, that relationship is so important. You're working so closely with this person and trusting them when you're, you know, completely um, feeling, you know, your confidence has like flown out the window um, and you don't know what you're doing in this last book. I mean, it was just a hard year that I was writing the, during the time that I was writing the book, a lot of personal things going on. It was really rough. And I, you know, one thing that I could sort of always count on was that I was able to like write in my voice and, you know, be funny. And, um, I wrote, I was like, not, it was not happening. And I just was, she was like, it, it needs to be funnier. And I was like, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think I'm funny anymore. Um, and, and then she was like, no, yes, you are. And then she was like, how about, um, don't you know anything? Uh, and she was, and I was like, oh yeah, now I remember. And then I sort of, she sort of guided me back towards the stuff that, you know, that I had kind of forgotten. And, and, you know, like, you know, we whipped, uh, we whipped everything around. So, um, it's a skill, so it's a skill being a good it, editor, you know, it's every bit as much as is. being, a, every bit as much as being a good writer. And it involves like in, in the, in the, a strange, um, and really interesting way. Like, you know, obviously when somebody's writing, well, whether it's nonfiction mm -hmm. or fiction, it's, you know, a good writer tends to have good insight into what it is to be human or whatever. Mm -hmm. And right. when you're a good editor, you tend to have really good insight into what it is to be human as well. And specifically what it is to be this writer human that they're working right. with. They can really, right. you know, that's what it feels like anyway. And it sounds like if you've done five books with one editor and you've been at one house this whole time that you've hit the jackpot because that's, yeah. not, that's not normal, right? No, I mean, I'm... I, I mean, I'm, I'm thrilled with like I, I, every person there. And I know so many people who are so unhappy with, you know, their agent, their publisher, their publicist, their whatever. And, you know, I, I just, I, 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 I do feel like, you know, it's like a magic relationship because not everybody who goes there stays there. You know, it just, the chemistry or whatever, I, you know. Um, and I, your books have done well. I mean, you know, you've had yeah, New York Times bestseller, and yeah, yeah. But I think that it's because how uh, because of how well we all work together. It I don't you know I just I feel like there's a, the the combinations of things work well. Um, you okay. know, so far. Well, okay. So so let me ask you: like, is it something that you like if you were trying to give advice to another writer about how to stay on board with your publisher, you know, like mm -hmm. uh, if you were trying to give somebody who wanted a similar relationship with a publisher mm -hmm. advice, like mm -hmm. w what do you do? Or is it something that you can't control? It just happens to be well, like a happy accident of personalities meshing. I mean, I think that, um, 
um, you know, agents uh, have to put those relationships together. It's like, I mean, I've had friends who who have sold books and they just went to the person who bid the most money. And um, I didn't do that. Um, I, nobody else bid on it, but... Um, it's, they are not, they're not a house that pays those, you know, billion dollar advances. And I knew that beforehand, but I knew that like, they don't put all the money in the advance because they put money into publicity, marketing, and the whole rest of the process. And if the book does well, you end up getting royalties. So it all works out. Um, but I think that it's really important that you have a similar, you know, vision as the person who you're, um, who you're editing, who's editing you, and that the kind of books that come out of the, the publisher that you're working with are the kind of books that you want to be associated with. And um, I also think that it's important to realize that it's a job and that a lot of people are doing what they're doing because they need to make money and that you know, people don't become editors because they want to be rich, but it's a job and people need to feed their families and you can't, you know, sometimes it's like, um, I feel like, you know, it's like when your kid is having a temper tantrum and then you like snap them out of it and say, you know, this is not acceptable. Um, I think like there are some writers who are like, it's like they're having temper tantrums because things aren't going the way they want them to or people aren't doing the things they want. And you really have to work hard. You have to work with the people. There's, there's the process of writing the book is hard, and then there's the process of publishing and promoting a book, which can be difficult. But, you know, you're, you're supposed to do that. Um, so I always feel like if you're in it like, I ha- like I have an, you know, feel like I, I, I have kind of an old fashioned company man attitude, you know, where, you know, I, I'm given a due date and that's the date. It's not, you know, I, I take it seriously and I take doing the work, what they ask me to do seriously. And I think they appreciate that. Um, I write thank you notes um, <laughs> to the people I work with and, and, you know, tr- little you know, things, little things. Yeah. And I think that if people like you, they, and they feel you appreciate them, it's very helpful in making them, um, you know, making your relationship work together. I mean, um, thank you notes you know, are a lost art, you know, or like, it yeah, seems like that. I like, know. I think it's a I good always thing send to a do. thank you note. Every, um, check I get, I always send a thank you note to my publisher and, uh, for whatever it is. And, um, you know, it's like at this point they're kind of goofy, but, um, but I, I, you know, I think of like how far it's come for me. And so, you know, um, it's important. I think it's important to, to, you know, keep it there. Yeah. Well, so what's next for you? What are you working um, on? I'm about? writing a next book is about what it's like to be a celebrity. Um, I'm going to be interviewing a lot of, um, different types of people who work around celebrities. Oh wait, okay. And, so wait, this sounds interesting. So you're going to, are you going to interview celebrities themselves or just the people um, in, the, in the periphery? Some, but yeah, people like that that have, you know, like a psychiatrist who treats famous people, and um, you know, it all started with there was a story on NPR about um, 
this Duke neurobiologist who had this, um, he was working with these rhesus monkeys and they, um, he had given them all like a very salty snack and given them a choice to either look at, uh, to either have their favorite drink, which was juicy juice juice boxes, or to look at pictures of the monkeys that were higher up in the monkey, um, sort of like the celebrity monkeys. Um, and they chose to look at the pictures of the monkeys instead of having their juice. And I thought, you know, that's there. There, this was a crazy world. But it's, but maybe there's something, maybe there's something more to this whole thing than um, than we know of. Um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna follow the monkeys and uh, and then the people who watch TV shows and all the different. Um, components of uh, the people that make up the world of celebrities. Interesting. So, And how far are you, just in the beginning stages? Yeah, I mean, it, I, I'm going to have to do it sort of quickly, but whenever I... I, I have a lot of trouble um, writing when, I'm, when I have a book coming out. I can't... I, I can't um, stare out the window and worry about things and write at the same time. So I've got to just stare out the window and worry about things. <laughs> Well, on, on that note, I think I will let you get back to it. But I, I, have, right. so, I have so enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. That and, was uh, so fun to talk to you. Yeah. Uh, best of luck with everything. Thank you. And uh, we'll look forward to, to reading the celebrity book when it's done. Ah, thanks. Thanks so much. Okay, you guys, there you go. That is it. That is the program. That is Julie Clam. Great to talk with her. You can find her online at julieclam.com. She's also on Facebook, and you can find her on the Twitter where her handle is at Julie Clam. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed at otherpeoplepod. Follow it. I have a Twitter feed at Brad Listy. If you would like to read my unfiltered personal tweeting, the show has a Facebook presence. And if you would like to email me and tell me your business, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. And hey, don't forget to go get the app, the free Other People app, the official app available for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's free, and it's the best way to listen to the show, so go get it. Thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, closing thoughts, I am feeling good, or I'm feeling better uh, about my book. I'm feeling a little bit humbled. I'm feeling cautiously optimistic. And I I really can't overstate how bleak things were, or or how bleak they seemed, and uh, and how uh, just a few days later everything turned around and I guess I had a moment of clarity, or I saw things differently somehow, and I realized that there was, in fact, a way forward. So if you're out there and things are looking incredibly bleak and you're considering uh, self-immolation, perhaps, or a massive public freakout involving nudity or something of that nature, please remember that circumstances can change rapidly. And uh, as the beatniks used to say, nothing lasts. Please remember that Beethoven was left-handed and that Marshall McLuhan died of a stroke. I will be back again soon, ladies and gentlemen, uh, in just a few days with another program for your enjoyment, another conversation that I have recorded. Thank you for listening. Please donate to the Red Cross if you haven't done that yet. Uh, The web address, once again, is redcross.org. Go do that. And, uh, yeah, I'm going to do that myself, and then I'm going to stare out the window and uh, feel guilty about the weather here in Los Angeles. I'm going to stare at the sun. I'm going to feel ashamed uh, for being comfortable. It's all about, you know, it's basically all about me. Do you see the pattern? 
Uh, guilt really is a selfish emotion. That's what they say. It's ultimately self-serving, uh, which then makes me feel guilty for feeling guilty. So it never ends. It never ends. 